All right. Here we go. Quiet. Quiet. Welcome to the Big Picture Podcast, where we take a look at the latest movie news, the films of today and yesterday, and put it all into some sort of context. Seated across the microphone from me is Film Buff Online Editor-in-Chief, Rich Trees! (laughs) And seated across the microphone from me is Film Buff Online Contributing Editor, Natasha Bogutsky! Okay. How's it going, Natasha? We're back! Yes, we've had a couple of weeks of Why didn't we wait till the new year? New year, new season. Lots of stuff to talk about. Lots of things have happened. And we're going to have to, if you're tuning in for our discussion about young Sherlock Holmes, we are going to still get to that. Oh, are we? Yes. Damn it. Maybe next week. What? It's still a Christmas movie. It takes place at Christmas time. I find it. I know. I know. You lost the copy I gave you. I think it's somewhere in my trunk. Oh, dear. (laughs) Of your car? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, dear. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sorry. No, 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 it's true. Mm-hmm. Oh, dear is the perfect way to, yeah. Describe that. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, anyways, not a lot of news has happened over the last couple of weeks, obviously, outside of, you know, Warner Brothers blowing up uh, distribution models, Disney announcing a fire hose of information about upcoming projects for the next couple of years. And um, everybody going, what in the world is going on right now? (laughs) Chaos. Anarchy. The apocalypse. Dogs and cats living Living together. together. Mass hysteria. (laughs) (laughs) See, I got you quoting Ghostbusters. (laughs) <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's Ghostbusters I'll always quote. Mm-hmm. Every time I pick up the phone and you're ringing me, it's Ghostbusters. What do you want? I know. Whereas you, you, it's you airplane. You do a good Janine Melman, let me tell you. Thank you. <laughs> I do a nice Annie Potts. Yay. But yeah, it's airplane that I can't get you to quote yet. And you never will. I'm going to get you to quote Zero Hour instead. Go away. <laughs> But anyways, we also have a special guest today. So if you end up hearing cat noises, oh, <laughs> it's actually yes. kind of cute. Mr. Arthur has decided to stop by uh, as we are recording, not at the uh, Film Buff Online uh, studios and headquarters, but we actually packed all the sh- stuff up and slept it over across town to because it's the holidays and Natasha's. we have to do shopping and other things that are non film buff related. <laughs> I I do things that are not related to the site. It doesn't seem like that some days. <laughs> <laughs> well, you brought me a bird, so yeah, that's true. <laughs> Christmas dinner is officially a go. Yes. It's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Um, so so I guess since we're talking about Christmas-ish stuff, um, let's dance around the diehard idea. But what is a good traditional Christmas movie for you in your home? Well, um, where to start? Um. <laughs> yeah, I know. You, you are a self-professed Christmas nutter. Yes. Christmas crazy person. Yes, I am. I'm proud of it. Um, oh my god, I don't know. I I, I don't I don't know where to start. Um, you have Christmas traditions, though. You've told me there are certain movies you watch when you're setting up the Christmas tree and starting yes. to hang the direct the decorations and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are years where that tradition gets broken. If I am in a a heart sick heartbroken mood it's love actually for a whole season it'll be mm-hmm. literally every single night um <laughs> with a little bit of the holiday mixed in i thought those in the family stone i would say family stone is kind of when i first saw it it was just eh. mm-hmm. and over the years it has really grown into kind of a traditional christmas film for me um but as for like ones that actually have traditions that we watch while we're doing things, um, usually it's Tim Allen's The Santa Claus when we're putting up the Christmas tree. Although this year we did White Christmas instead. Uh, we we did an Irving Berlin night, so back to back that and Holiday Inn. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And every year on Christmas Eve, it's our my family does It's Wonderful Life, obviously. Yes. Um, but I added my own about five years ago. So after we're done with It's a Wonderful Life and everyone else goes to bed, I usually stay up and I do Meet Me in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. I know you love that movie. Mm. <laughs> Although I think they celebrate uh, Halloween in that town really weirdly. They really do. It's like Lord of the Flies. <laughs> and we've, we've jo- I've joked about this before with you, but we... it's, it's a great movie. It's a sweet movie, but man, in the 1880s or whatever that was set, 1890s? 1904. Five, I think okay. something like that. Yeah, Sorry. yeah. Nineteen oh five, weird way to celebrate Halloween. Let's let the kids have a bonfire and terrorize the town <laughs> and throw flour in people's faces. Yeah, yeah Jesus, what the hell? <laughs> and you wet the flour so it sticks. Oh, of course. And they yes. can't get it off. <laughs> so basically, we're throwing wet paper mache at people. <laughs> yep. What the hell? <laughs> My God. As uh, as two people who have recently had to scrape it off a counter. But when it comes to Christmas traditions, yeah, those are those three are definitely the ones. And actually, it's kind of funny because the family stun was the one that introduced me to meet me in St. Louis. Because <laughs> there's a, a section in the middle of the mm-hmm. film where they utilize footage from Meet Me in St. Louis of Judy Garland singing to Margaret O'Brien have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, which was written tradi- originally for that film mm-hmm. um, and has ever since gone on to be a Christmas classic in its own right. Um, what about you? I don't have a lot of traditional Christmas movies. Um, there are movies I associate with Christmas time. I'll admit, like, um, I know it sounds weird, the Lord of the Rings films, although... I can jokingly say the Lord of the Rings films are Christmas because A, they have elves, B, there's snow, and C, Smeagol wants a present. Uh, <laughs> you want to be mad with me. <laughs> I know you want to be mad with me over that it joke. Works. Um, it works so beautifully, I can't be. <laughs> comedy roll of threes, too. Uh, but, but I associate that with not so much like traditional Christmas imagery, but the fact that the three Decembers those movies came out, I would go down to my parents for Christmas, uh, usually the weekend after whatever Christmas day was, and a lot of my brothers would be there with their kids. So that Saturday, we'd pile all the nephews and nieces into a car or cars, head to a local movie theater, and we all saw Lord of the Rings, Fellowship Two Towers, and then Return of the King. So that was like a three-year tradition that we had. So when I think of those movies or when I watch those movies, I think about how fun it was to take you know, the extended family to them to mm-hmm. see them and then how we enjoyed it all together. That was a Christmas outing thing. Usually Christmas Day or the day after Christmas, um, my mom and I didn't go to the movies um, except for the year that Lane Miz came out. We mm-hmm. did go see that the day after. And bald like crazy. Um, but we do have a series that we sort of, and and I know people are going to, we're going to lose subscribers over this oh, little on. story. Um, a series that I do kind of associate with going to the theater at Christmas time to see is Twilight, actually. Okay. Um, usually, it would be like the week... Either right before Thanksgiving or right after Thanksgiving. So we're gearing up for Christmas time. Um, we in Wilkes-Barre, not far from us, um, they do a Christmas parade every year. Mm-hmm. And my mom and I would go down and we'd stand out in the snow for two and a half, three hours, however long it was. I was supporting, you know, I have friends in the high school band who would play in it. We'd stay, we'd watch the the mayor do the tree lighting, and then we would walk a block and a half up the street, um, usually grab a slice at Januzzi's next door, mm-hmm. and then we would go in to see the newest Twilight film. And we did that starting with the first film, and because it came out, that for some reason, every Twilight film came out on that weekend. So it was that's, that Sunday when... You know, when we were after the the parade, we would go do that. So that was our that was our little Christmas tradition that had to do with a series. Oh, that's nice. I like that. 
Yeah, see, so that's, you know, something similar. And, you know, other years, you know, we tried to find... Although yours is better at actually being a Christmas series than mine is. <laughs> I'm vampires. You have fucking Vampires elves. and werewolves? Aren't they part of Christmas? <laughs> Do I... Am I missing something? I don't know. Uh, well, the third one had snow. <laughs> that's true. That is true. Okay, again, setting aside Die Hard, even, you know... Movies that I kind of associate as a Christmassy kind of movie are just Gremlins that, that takes place at Christmas. Gremlins is a gre- Gremlins is a weird movie, man. I don't call it a Christmas movie. The more I think about Gremlins, and you know, Gremlins holds a place in my heart not because I think it's a great movie; it's a fine movie. Um, it's actually the first script I ever owned. Aww. That that I bought at a um, charity auction at a Star Trek convention in high school. My um, first script. Oh wait, no, no, no. I'm sorry. It's the first film script. I owned two TV scripts before that, that were fresh off the uh, the set of V that I also bought that day. Actually, my first script was um, might have been Black Swan. Oh, nice. And there was a section. Yep. There was a section that they never stuck in the film that I really liked, and I wish they were going to put in where she was peeling her skin like a an onion and underneath the feathers would be. <laughs> Why does that make me think of the scene in Poltergeist with the guy at the mirror? You're th- you're in, thinking in the original Poltergeist. You're thinking of that. I think of yeah. salt. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. when she's ripping the mask off her face it's like ah. mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> It's always funny to me that salt, which was originally written for Tom Cruise, has a scene where a guy, you know, this the star, the secret agent, rips, you know, pulls a fake mask off of them. And Tom Cruise says, I don't want to do this movie. I'm going to go do Mission Impossible where I'm going to take fake masks off my face. Oh, six or seven times now. <laughs> it's, a we- it's a weird way to connect those two. But that's that's what I think about. I, I, I think, think, salt, I think people. It's a good film. Though. Yeah, I think people kind of sleep on salt. Mm-hmm. Like it's one of those. It's just. People don't look at it all that often. There is, there are a lot of films that people sleep on, like Salt. Um, a Simple Favor. A Simple we Favor. We just watched which that this you, week. Yeah, you just watched that this week. So goddamn good. I know. That's one of those where, you know, you just think, man, society did a disservice to that film because yes. it's really good. It's so good. And I want to go back and watch it now, but we have things to do. Um <laughs> Laissez tomber les filles, laissez tomber les filles, je sais toi qui <laughs> The music on A Simple Favor got me hooked bad. You, into you, my... You're already into like French language pop songs anyways, for whatever reason. From like, but... yeah, 60s to now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and three of them showed up in that film that I knew. So the moment that they started, I'm singing along. <laughs> Yeah, but um, some of the other songs, uh, songs, yeah, some of the other films that I associate kind of like with Christmas or the year's end because I always seem to watch them at that time. Um, I would say like the first two Thin Man movies. The first Thin Man movie takes place over Christmas week, and uh, the Thin Man, uh, or I'm sorry, after the Thin Man takes place New Year's weekend over New Year's week, basically. And so you know, TCM will invariably run them at some point between the 25th of December and January 2nd. Um, I guarantee you, oh, without even looking at their schedule, yeah. that it's going to be again this year. Um, for New Year's, when I was growing up, it would be Holiday Inn. Holiday Inn was the New Year's film. Mm-hmm. The whole, you know, we start the new year right at 12 <laughs> o'clock tonight. Good old Bing and, and Fred Astaire. And um, that, that film is kind of perfect and you can you can watch it at any holiday in the year well, yeah because there's um, a section for each one maybe not lincoln's birthday <laughs> lincoln's birthday is no longer a thing <laughs> neither <laughs> well, is washington's it's just president's president's day. day but still um that's one of those <laughs> movies um it may be fun to kind of spring on somebody just to catch their reaction but you really shouldn't do it and we should apologize uh, like to we, mel like, yeah, our friend mel who came in from new jersey the other day and was spending time with us and i thought it would be cute to throw on holiday in while we're baking cookies and and she was not aware that there was a blackface musical number in this movie <laughs> it was and, brilliant oh boy and uh, I mean, she, she, we know her well enough, obviously, that, yeah, you know, she understands the, 
the absolute racism of blackface and which we do as yeah, well and how it unfortunately it's was part of musical tr- it's still part of well it's part of musical history music performance history vaudeville uh, vaudeville things like that vaudeville uh blackface minstrel shows part of that and that's one of the things though with older hollywood musicals especially the review musicals with that style where they do a big musical review number and it's a lot of different styles that they're drawing from, you know, in the 30s and 40s, you're going to get some blackface. Yeah. Unfortunately. There's a um, Judy Garland, Mickey uh, Rooney movie, and I can't remember if it's Babes in Arms or which one it is, but in the middle of the big production number at the end, there's some blackface. In fact, I think that's also that, – to tie that also in with um, Holiday Inn, that – Whichever movie that is also ends with a big, you know, patriotic thing with, I think, Mickey Rooney, like in, you know, kind of made up or costumed up to look like FDR. Oh, wow. The way the July 4th number has the the big FDR thing in Holiday Inn. Yeah. So, so obviously, I think we can guess what years during the 1940s those two movies came out. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe the war years. Um, well, actually, at the end of uh, I think at the end of the uh, uh, of Holiday Inn, they actually have like the big buy your war bonds here kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it, it, I find it funny that both Holiday Inn and White Christmas are Irving Berlin films. Um, they came out within ten years of each other. So you had Holiday Inn in the forties during the war years. You. Had, Bing Crosby came back and does White Christmas 10 years later. They both have Abraham in their – but the way that they do it is completely different. Exactly. Like they, they do it in blackface in the 40s and then in the 50s it's this choreographed dance number. There's no music in the back. Like there's no lyrics. It's just the orchestration of it. And it's kind of like jazzy and da 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 And it's just – it's and it's – it's interesting to see how times have changed on one song and how it's mm-hmm. portrayed and performed. Um, Th- those, what's great, you know, and I think sometimes people forget is, you know, movies are time capsules, mm-hmm. and we you you've just given us a great example of how, you know, in just ten years we see how maybe society's attitudes towards certain things have changed. Mm-hmm. Um, people always think like the old Warner Brothers cartoons are just you know ah they're cartoons so, so they're for kids and nope. I would. I would watch them on, uh, you know, weekday afternoons after getting home from school, you know, when they had those syndication packages and stuff. And there was invariably something, I a joke I wouldn't get. And often, I'd ask my dad. I'd say, you know, hey, what's, what, you know, why in the, the, the cartoon with the, the gremlins and Bugs Bunny, what, what did censored mean on that big sign in front of the army base at the beginning? And so my dad would tell me about, you know, well, during the war, they tried to, you know, censor certain information, you know, to protect troops and to help the war effort. Or what do they mean by, oh, I forgot, us civilians aren't supposed to do any unnecessarily and any unnecessary traveling these days. And, you know, again, it was a World War II thing. You know, I learned a lot about the home front of World War II. As a like a, a tween, I guess, between like the ages of like eleven and fourteen or something like mm. that, watching Bugs Bunny cartoons. Wow, it's which is cr- sounds on its surface crazy, but if you, you learn, start to you have a lot of knowledge. Yeah, from that. yeah, yeah. You, you know, I started discussions with my dad, who was like roughly the same age at that time. He was eight when they bombed Pearl Harbor, oh, or no, he it was the, Pearl Harbor was the day before his eighth birthday. So, so yeah, so. He had all those memories and, you know, he could kind of, you know, we have those discussions, you know, as I was growing up in late, you know, late 70s, early 80s at that time, roughly the same age, maybe a couple of years older. So that was really, that, you know, that's like one thing that I really appreciate about film is I don't have a big interest. I mean, I don't have a big desire to do deep dives into history of our country or stuff like that. I, you know, I have a good knowledge of the basics as I would hope everybody does. But what I see in film kind of helps shade and fill out some of those spots. Mm-hmm. And I do appreciate that for that. Um, um, with Holiday and, you know, the, 
the way it is a time capsule is kind of funny because I think the greatest film time capsule of all time is actually James Bond. Oh, good Lord, yes. <laughs> <laughs> because it's it's been going for over 50 years, mm-hmm. so you get shades of every single decade and how – you know how a a single character can go through such a change mm-hmm. um television wise i would i would say doctor who but yeah. for film i would say james bond i mean we we watched goldfinger on uh, <laughs> halloween <laughs> <laughs> and i used to consider that one of the greatest james bond films of all time and i still do but it dropped a little lower on the on the top 5 list <laughs> Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, I mean, the literary bond is very misogynistic. Yeah. He treats women like shit. But th- and unfortunately, that's kind of baked in at the time mm-hmm. with the material that as they were adapting it, because they weren't, you know, only 10, maybe 15 years. I'd have to look at publication dates versus film release dates. Yeah. But they were, you know, that was within the rough time span that they were, you know, from the book to the film. And. Yeah. <laughs> the- Quiet dink, man talk. Slap her on the ass. Oh my you, god. I'm sitting there. I'm sitting on the couch with your husband. You are sitting in the seats, you know, next to the couch basically. And you visibly like <laughs> kind of like blew up a little bit. Like, in- what? <laughs> what did I just watch? <laughs> and- the thing is, I've seen it before so many times, but it's just been a while since I went back and rewatched it. Like, I, I probably haven't seen it in a good seven years or something okay, like so- that. And so, yeah, it was a different attitude uh, from, you know, last time I watched it. it- and as a teenager, because you were, what, 18, 19 or so. So you were yeah. still, you know. Barely think, out of high school. I think the last time I rewatched them all was right when Skyfall was coming out. And I sat down and I tried to, to get my hands on as many of them as possible. Unfortunately, that because I was borrowing them from the local library system, um, <laughs> I wasn't able to get my hands on any Roger Moore or Timothy Dalton. So I'm okay. still a little I, – I haven't hit those mm-hmm. yet. Um, I'm working on Timothy Dalton right now. And, and then, of course, the scene where he um, – Oh, my God. Pussy galore. The pussy oh galore in the barn scene, which – Pretty much, we read it today as rape. It is. is it, oh, well, you're yeah. a lesbian. I'm going to rape you so hard that a you like men, and b you'll help me now. What? That's that's what that scene feels mm-hmm. like today. It's, I mean, and for you know, you've got the cool Aston Martin. You've got the. Do you, do you expect me to talk? No, no Mister Bond, Bond. I expect, I expect you, you to die. die. You, you, for all that greatness in Goldfinger. Oh man. I don't like to use the word problematic all that much, <laughs> but oh boy, is that a problematic movie? Yeah, it's you know, and I, ooh, it things don't age well. Um, on the other hand, though, some things do, and some things yeah. don't. I was, I was watching uh, yesterday. In addition to Ma Rainey's uh, Black Bottom, which we're going to review in the second half of our show, I was watching No Way Out with uh, Richard Woodmark and Sidney Poitier. Sidney Poitier plays a doctor who is a hospital intern who's treating a racist who was shot by the police in the leg. And the racist character, played by Richard Rudemark, does not want anything to do with a young Sidney Poitier being his doctor. And they drop a lot of N-bombs in this movie. I mean, it's perfectly justified because the characters are racist and his friends are racist and there's going to be a race riot and there's a lot of... You know, it feels perfectly correct in terms of where the characters are that they would use this language. So I didn't have a problem with it. Um, and then again, you know, I watched Ma Rainey after that. And again, there's a lot of N-bomb dropping perfectly in character for the people saying it mm-hmm. and how it's used. But man, it was, it was a lot. It was a lot to take in one day. I was like, I've, <laughs> go I've... watch Dave Chappelle's <laughs> SNL from a month ago. <laughs> I was gonna. I, I was sitting there on the sofa, you know, watching that when it first came out, and I went, "Did he just drop a couple of n bombs?" Oh yeah, on public national television mm-hmm. live. <laughs> and um... I'm surprised that didn't get any traction in the media. I'm... Again, I think it's a case of the usage. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, I was sitting here by the end of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom going, I think I've heard the N-word more time between these two movies than if I just rewatched Blazing Saddles this afternoon. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes. But again, again. 12 another... Years a Slave, though, is a yeah. rough one to go through for that language. Yeah. But perfectly in character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, perfectly in character. So it's kind of like a, you know, you can't really state your message without that. It's it's yeah. usage. It's usage. They're depicting bad people. They aren't bad people themselves. Uh, but it's funny you mentioned Dave Chappelle because also this weekend I had gone back and was catching up on David Letterman's um, My Next Guest Needs No Introduction on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And I watched the Dave Chappelle episode. And it's really good. Chappelle very rarely gives interviews, and I found it a really interesting watch as he kind of talked about his career and everything else. Holiday Inn was my choice of film up only until about two years ago. Now my New Year's film is obviously When Harry Met Sally. Yes. (laughs) You knew where that was going. Oh, I I knew. (laughs) I saw that statement coming down the street with a band behind it. (laughs) (laughs) 76 freaking trombones? Yep. (laughs) And if you know where that reference is from, I give you a lot of credit, listener. Oh, come on. You love know, that movie. Yeah, you know. I love Music Man. Oh, thanks. (laughs) Spoilers. Not everyone knows it. It's not a spoiler to give a song title for a musical that's been out for, what, 60 years, 70 years now? Yeah, only if, you know, people haven't seen The Music Man. I saw it once in middle school. Really? Yeah. I own it. I love it. I didn't like it. Really? Yeah. I know some people are kind of like, meh, on it. I don't know why. I just enjoy it. I love the music. Little Ronnie Howard is cute. I really like Robert Preston in the lead role. I mean, I think you he's fantastic. You and I watched different versions of The Music Man. Oh, you saw the... Matthew, what? Matthew Broderick. The Matthew Broderick one? Yeah. Ooh, I have <laughs> not actually seen that. Yeah. I am really, really sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Who sh- Oh, was that was that when it aired on TV? I don't know. I just re- I just remember someone rolling a television into the music class and sticking it in. Wow. Wasn't there a version with Jason Alexander also? I want to I don't hmm. know. I want to say I'm if if there wasn't there should be cuz I kind of want to see that now that I, now that it's in my head. Honest to God when someone's told me that Music Man was going back on Broadway with Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster I'm like Oh, yay! Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster getting together. That's awesome. Wait, Music Man? Oh, never mind. <laughs> that was my brain. You don't want to see Wolverine singing uh, 76 trombones? Or You've Got Trouble? No. But yes, When Harry Met Sally is my new New Year's film. I watched that so many times during quarantine. <laughs> Just trying to get the year over that much faster? <sighs> Well, I was also going through a big, like, 80s phase of, like, oversized sweaters and jeans mm-hmm. and stuff like that, so, because, yeah. And then quarantine weight hit, hit, and I can't fit in any of <laughs> Now, now. It was, like, four months ago. Fuck. Look, we've got truckloads of vaccine heading out down the America's highways right now. Yay! You know... We we have an end in sight, okay? A few more months of this. Hopefully by the late spring, we'll all be good, and we can go back to doing film festivals. And... Yeah, speaking of which, hmm. do you think the movie theaters will still be alive by then? Actually, After Warner Brothers and oof. Disney? Disney said they still have a commitment to theatrical release. They're putting a lot of stuff onto their streaming services, developing a lot of stuff for FX and Hulu and everything. But they said they're still committed to the theatrical experience because if they weren't we'd be getting black widow on disney plus but they're saying nope we're keeping black widow for theatrical in in late may and what about warner brothers and their whole fight with legendary that's gonna be interesting to see how that plays out honestly um you're looking at a lot of people who have back-end deals and a lot of people who weren't told who weren't told um Basically, I think like the the higher ups at Legendary got a call a half an hour before the the news hit. A couple of reporters were sent press releases a half an hour before the news was to be announced with embargo dates. You know, basically say, "Hi, don't talk about this for thirty minutes here." 
and basically had 30 minutes to pull together a piece, which, ooh, <laughs> part of me goes, wow, what an adrenaline rush to write that. And I'm kind of envious of them, but at the same time, I'd be like, holy shit. It would have taken me about 30 minutes to even get my head wrapped around the enormity of what they were doing. <laughs> so honestly, even though that is now two weeks in the past and we you know, we have both talked about it on our friend JW's podcast, Loud and Nerdy, which you can find on Facebook. I've written about it pretty extensively on Film Buff Online. This story is not over yet, not by a long shot. There's still legal options that Legendary is exploring, as well as Village Roadshow, who's also another production partner with Warner Brothers. The DGA is still steaming mad from everything I've read, and very likely could say, we're going to boycott Warner Brothers, and none of the guild members will work for them. And if that were to happen... I guarantee you the WGA and SAG would also follow suit. Yeah, right lockstep. And where does that put What about the PGAs? Producers Guild? Probably. Probably. And then, of course, all the, you know, the sound mixing guild, the cinematographers union, everybody else would be just like, yeah, no, we're all good. Because, well, and even if they didn't, what would be the point if... You have no directors, you have no writers, you have no stars, you have no actors. What's everybody else going to do? Cinematographers are going to show up and shoot a nicely lit and nicely decorated set with nothing happening on it. And that's your movie. So They can hire non-union workers. <sighs> okay. That's, that's <laughs> dicey because, really, if you want to get into Hollywood, but you haven't done enough work to get into a union yet, and you... You're trying to collect your union waiver days to do that, and then you – it's it's not a strike. So it's technically you're not scab working for Warner Brothers, but the guilds are going to notice. And I think for a short term, I got to work you know, on a, on a non-guild thing, but it's Warner Brothers is probably not good for your long-term career. Because it's something I thought about. Like once I heard the DGA was threatening to boycott, you know, was thinking about discussing about possibly boycotting Warners. My thought was like, well, yeah, there's probably a bunch of directors in in the who aren't guild in Hollywood, you know, who just are sitting there making their short films, trying to make their little indie projects and stuff like that, trying to make something that gets them more work so they can join the guild because to meet the guild requirements. But would you do that? Would you take work? To join the guild that's currently boycotting your employer. Is that a good idea to do? I, do, I don't think so. And I think in the long term that would come back to bite you in the ass. Very definitely. Very definitely. So, you know, and it's it's something I wouldn't advise anybody to do. And, you know, I'll admit I actually thought about if we were in that situation or not. You weren't the only one. I know. <laughs> and And I was just like... I would counsel Natasha against doing this if if we happen to be in a situation where somebody from Warner said, hey, you're not Guild. You want to direct Wonder Woman 3 for us or whatever? Or, you know, whatever. I'd be like, oh, that's that's really tempting. That's a lot of money, too. That's a lot of money. But um, in terms of a long-term career move, that's probably not the best one to, have, to, to ever make. No. So. But on that note, we're going to take a short break, and then we'll be right back with our review of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Stay tuned. In 1984, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, the first in playwright August Wilson's 10-play cycle that looked at a century of the African-American experience, opened on Broadway to rave reviews. Set on a steamy hot day in the summer of 1927, the story is the fictionalized account of the recording of the titular song, one of the biggest hits for early blues legend Ma Rainey. As the band waits for her to show up for the recording session, they discuss and argue over their own past experiences current place in society, and future dreams, and in doing so, deal with themes of racism, 
religion, and the exploitation of black musicians by a white-run music industry. The show would win a New York Drama Critics Circle Award and garnered a Tony Award nomination for Best Play of the Year. Flash forward 36 years as Netflix presents a somewhat truncated version of the play as a new film starring Chadwick Boseman as Levy, Ma Rainey's talented and ambitious trumpet player, and Viola as a strong-willed Ma Rainey. Although trimmed down from the original stage version, the film still depicts the feelings of African Americans as they struggle to find their place and acceptance in society. So, Natasha. Yes. Did you find that this film resonated with you, even though it's not discussing experiences that you can primarily relate to? I'm going to get shot. (laughs) I don't think this film was very good. Um... And, okay. I, and I think because of that, I didn't click into it as much as I could have. Not because of the themes. I think the themes were very well done. Mm-hmm. Um, but for other reasons, I didn't connect to this film. Okay. In the scenes that I did, the themes were prevalent and they hit me like a Mack truck. Mm-hmm. I appreciated that, like a lot of cinema, it brought me to a viewpoint and an experience that's outside of my own. Yeah. To once again quote uh, Roger Ebert, movies are an empathy machine, and we understand other people's trials and their life experiences through them. Nice paraphrasing. And um, so, so you know, I think this even is kind of throws back to what we were talking about in the first half of the show about, you know, watching movies and opening up discussions with my father about what he went through when I asked him to explain certain things that I didn't understand. Um and I think this movie does a great job of distilling all of that down. Yeah. As an actual biopic, I wouldn't term this as a biopic at all. No. For Ma Rainey. We don't learn anything really about Ma Rainey outside of what you couldn't figure out from reading Wikipedia. Early blues singer, very popular. Started off you know, doing tent revival shows. Became a big hit during the northern migration of the 20s. And... Was LGBTQ. Yeah. And the was very strong-willed, and she would have had to have been to get where she was, mm-hmm. to get the amount of fame she had, to get the amount of control over the career that she did. As somebody who took a you know history of jazz class in college, I could sit there and go, no, Mom Rainey's Black Bottom was recorded in 1925, not 1927. You know, I could sit there and go, all of those four musicians are fictional constructs. There, they, there was nobody with those names in her band. But that's the purpose of the movie is to create four characters – Put them in a situation so they can talk about it and talk about their own various experiences and kind of compare and contrast. I don't think that she's the lead. She's not. She's a supporting character. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she is playing the title character of Ma Rainey, but Viola Davis is not the main character of this film. This is Chadwick Boseman's vehicle, and it was long before he passed away. Mm -hmm. And the moment this film came out and I sat down and started watching it. I, your main characters are down in the band room. Mm-hmm. Everyone else are supporting characters in comparison. Absolutely. And I think we're going to quickly be drifting into our problems with this film because, you know, while we liked what it had to say, how it went about saying it is not as good as it could have been. And I don't have a problem with stage plays. I I do stage plays myself. I particularly love it when you have three or four characters in one room for a long period of time and it forces people to kind of come to terms not with each other but with their own internal struggles i love that i think that is one of the greatest joys for an actor but from a cinematic standpoint that oftentimes doesn't work oh yeah i do agree with you definitely cinematically this movie barely leaves that building and, Barely leaves the band room. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of roving camera. They try to add some visual energy. But this film, I don't think, ever really exceeds its stage roots. No. There are some films that, okay, just random off at the top of my head, The Odd Couple. Yeah. Yeah. The Odd Couple, I feel, is much bigger than its stage version as a movie. There's a, you know. Closer. Closer, another one. It, which it definitely you get you get the feeling of it being a very intimate stage play, but doesn't, uh, but gives you something a little bit more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, I would actually compare this to Carnage. 
Okay. Ma Rainey to Carnage. Okay. Um, you know, four or five characters in one room for a long period of time. And it's, it doesn't have a lot of energy. It has energy in the actors, but that's about it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I would agree. I would agree with you there. It's the the acting is the focus here, and it barely ca- carries this movie. It barely carries this movie. If any of those performances had been less than what they were, this it, thing this would have flopped. Very inert. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, would have flopped. I mean, there's there's a couple of moments where the film is really uh, cinematic. Mm. The opening shot where you see two yeah. kids running through the woods. And you hear a dog bark, and you're thinking, uh-oh, escaped slave kids. And That's they're what I was being thinking, chased. Yeah. yeah, exactly. They play with your expectation there. I really like that because they kind of run, and then suddenly they're at the revival you know, tent, and there's a line of people, and they get into the line. The camera follows up the line, and there you see Ma Rainey performing. performing and it's fantastic. That's fantastic, yeah. And then they do like a quick little dissolve through a couple of things to get you to – where she's performing in Chicago on a big stage with a big band and dancers and there's lights and everything. It gives you a view of what she – how she performs and, and the crowd and the energy and the, oh, yeah. the it, vibe. It gives you the arc of her career and of the arc – not of her career so much as her success mm-hmm. from where, going from that tent to that big stage show in, in like 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. And that's great. I was like, oh, this is fantastic. And then – we basically wind up getting stuck for the next 20 minutes in a room with, with the musicians and it's very stage bound. It's, it's talky. I, I don't mean, that's mind talky. Pur- I don't mind talky. I know that's the purpose of this is to have these characters relate their experiences and that works on a stage. But a lot of times though, movies are show don't tell. And this is something, you know, even yeah. when we write our own stuff that we have, you know, sometimes we have to trim dialogue and look at that. Uh, but this is very talky without showy. Yeah. Like, I th- I think good dialogue is, when it, when it comes, not even just good dialogue, good writing, your story, your characters, if you don't have that good basis, everything else is going to go downhill from there. And this has a good story and it has good characters. And the actors prove that. But because they are stuck in the limits and the boundaries in which the stage play set, it's a little difficult for editing and cinematography to make up for the rest of that. True. And it, it's hard to kind of open this play up, too. Mm. That, as I'm, th- you know, at some point while I was watching this yesterday, my brain starts to kick in and go, okay, how would I have opened this up if I was doing this adaptation? Yeah, it's and- not a few good men. It actually kind of reminds me of Burn This a little. Yeah, it's all in one. It's yeah. one location. And by necessity, these characters have to be in this location. Mm-hmm. It's not just like, well, this is a, a conversation that could be happening. At a diner. As, at a diner or p- two people walking down the street having the conversation instead of it being in this living room or whatever. It's no, these people are in this pressure cooker of the hot musician's rehearsal room waiting for Ma to show up. So the heat's getting to them, their ambitions, their pride, their everything is starting to become, you know, the the stew of the drama. Mm-hmm. And you can't move that anywhere. No. I mean, you can have like a little thing with, you know, Ma at the hotel and you kind of get the idea that, oh, she stays in a nice hotel. She's, you know, meanwhile, the, you know, she's arriving in the nice car. Meanwhile, the musicians have to take the subway or the elevated train. And so there are little things that help. Stitch it. Yeah, spice it up a little bit, but still. Nothing happens in that car, not until the accident. Yeah. So you're just sitting in silence. And I think that that speaks a little bit about how Ma's character is, how stoic she is, and how she uses that to protect herself. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's. From a visual standpoint, from a film standpoint, if this had stayed on stage, it has all the makings of a perfect stage show. It oh, does. Yeah. It, it has is, the yeah. acting, the writing. It, you know, that's those are the main pieces that you need. You do need direction, obviously, but but here you've got other departments that you have to worry about, and I don't think <laughs> mm-hmm. they match up to what is going on. 
I would like to read the stage play just because I understand it's longer. And I would just kind of like to see where they kind of move things around for the film or what they trimmed or what they, you know, truncated just to kind of make a comparison. Because, I mean, there's a lot of things that are really powerful in this movie. Like when Levy tells the story of being eight years old, his father's away, and the white men break into the house and rape his mother and threaten him and slash him with a knife. And then everything that follows from that. That's a great story. That's a moving story. That's a powerful performance of that telling of that story. Yeah. And that's great stage. And it's yeah, it's great stage. And I, 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 there were definitely shots of that where, because we're so close up on Levy's face, it's you're sitting there going, "My God!" and you're covering over your mouth because you're feeling it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I, and I, that's that's where film excels. It brings you up close and personal. Whereas if that was being performed on a stage. You wouldn't be able to see the little intricacies of the performance from the back row. Yeah. And if they're playing towards the back row, if you're closer, it might seem a little exaggerated to you mm-hmm. because you're, you're closer so you can see the, the bigger movements that are designed to be seen by the people in the back. So, yeah, film film has that super immediacy, which is great and works for these performances. But the way the story is written itself – it's more of a stage piece than a film piece. Yeah. To me. That being said, 38 minutes in, and I paused the film, picked up the phone, called you, and I said, Be prepared. Chadwick Boseman's going to nab himself an Oscar nom for this. Oh, gosh, yes. And I don't want anybody to think, because I actually had to kind of like, you know, check my own filters on this. Don't think that you're going to watch it and think, Well, this is his last work. So. You know, they're obviously going to kind of give him something posthumously. This, no. If if he was still alive and just prepping to do Black Panther 2 right now. He would still nab would an still Oscar now. Nomi- yeah, getting nominated. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it's he would definitely still receive a nomination for this film. His mm-hmm. performance is so powerful. That's why I said this is the Chadwick Boseman vehicle. So even if he hadn't passed away, it would still be his vehicle. Yeah, I, it is. He mm-hmm. gives such a rousing performance in this. It's the best work I've seen him do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think on a certain level, though, that it's so damn good that it kind of hammers home the tragedy of his passing at such a young age. I mean, several months ago when he did die, you know, we talked about that we're not sad for you know losing him personally because we didn't know him. But we're mourning the work that he could have given the world. Mm. And looking at this, you know, it's just like, oh. It really hurts. Yeah. It, it's, it's sad. And it's, you know, that something dumb like colon cancer took him. And it's sad that dumb that colon cancer or cancer or anything else takes people before their time. And hell, we've learned that over and over and over again this year. Um, I, I would say with this film, had he not passed, his performance is so good, it actually overshadows the film. Yeah. Yeah. I would, uh, it, 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 like I said before, you know, it's the performances that keep this film afloat and his most of all. Yeah. Most indeed. I, I love Viola Davis. I think she is up there with Meryl Streep as one of the greatest actors of our time. But in comparison, she doesn't even hold a candle to Chadwick here. <laughs> and she does fine work. I yeah. think, you know, what she does is fine work. The rest of the cast is really good. But, you know, it's just, it's Chadwick Boseman the whole way. Mm-hmm. And honestly, you know, he probably knew that this might be his last performance. So he might have put everything into it. I don't know, you know, and that's up to his family to talk about if they have or not. I tend not to see those kind of interviews. Or if I do, you know, so-and-so speaks about, you know, beloved stars, last days. I tend to avoid those things because they feel very exploitative yeah. on a certain level. Um, but at a certain point, you know, I might kind of start to look and say, you know, okay, what was going through his mind as he was creating this? Because it's fantastic. And I'm sad, actually, that he's not around to see people 
responding and enjoying and praising it because he really I – mean, even if he was a modest guy who didn't need applause, he really deserved to hear the applause for this. Yes. Plus, I think there is also a little bit of feeling beholden to Denzel Washington as well. Mm-hmm. Who produced this film? Yes, um, Denzel actually was the one who paid for him to go to college, <laughs> mm-hmm. to acting school, and he had a chance to. When he was at the Oscars a few years ago for Black Panther, he had the chance to run into Denzel and thank him personally, and uh, having that chance to work with someone who had such faith in you even before you may have even had faith in yourself, and being able to work with someone like that. Whilst at the exact same time, possibly knowing it could be your last project, there is something about that that makes you want to try harder to leave behind something worthwhile. And if he wasn't already Jackie Robinson and James Brown and Black Panther, (laughs) he would be Levy. Exactly. And... On that note, though, I don't think we can do anything more about this. Um, Just prep for the Oscars, ladies and gentlemen, because we've got a nomination coming for Chadwick Boseman. Indeed. And that about wraps us up for this week. Remember, you can find us online at bigpicturepod.com, and we are now available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. So either use the link in the show notes post or head directly there, search and hit subscribe. And if you like what you're listening to, leave a positive review, because that always helps us connect with new listeners. We'll be back next time with more news analysis and with a review of the much-anticipated Wonder Woman 1984. And that's all right here on the Big Picture Podcast. <laughs>